Good evening, yogis. I was just sitting there having this um, feeling. Can you all hear me good enough with, like this without me? Okay. Um, I was just sitting here uh, feeling like we really are a community, just kind of feeling into that that sense of our of our groupness. Um, you know, even though we're not talking to each other, we get to know each other in some kind of um, non-conceptual way. Well, sometimes we add some concepts on top, too. <laughs> but, but there's just something about a way we get to know each other kind of energetically. And it's very sweet to know people in silence. It's just enjoying that. So tonight I'm going to talk about giving, Donna and Polly. But I want to start with uh, a little bit from the Satipatthana Sutra. So we've been checking in with this sutra regularly, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness Sutra. Um, But there's a part of it that we haven't really talked about much. So in the sutra, as you know, it's divided into four areas, the body, uh, Vedana, feeling tone, uh, the mind, and uh, what are sometimes called dhammas, phenomena, ways of organizing um, the teachings. And each refrain, so each one describes different ways that were, are different places we're mindful, different foundations. And then each refrain, there's a refrain section that repeats itself. It were to watch each one of these and it's arising and then it's passing away and it's arising and passing away. So pointing to the, to the foundational truth of, of change, of anicca, of impermanence. And then we're also told in each refrain to contemplate this foundation um, internally and externally. And we don't talk about that a lot. And I'm, I wonder about that. Like um, when I was first learning uh, meditation uh, in the Mahasi style that follows very much the, the, the four foundations of mindfulness, we didn't talk about that. Um, so I'm going to talk about it a little bit tonight. We mostly focus on contemplating the body and Vedana and the mind, and all of it internally, right? That's what we've been focusing on for the last number of weeks. Contemplating our experience within our own, you could say, being. And then this contemplating externally. I think one reason why we don't talk about it too much is that people aren't even, a lot of people aren't sure what it is or what it means or how you would do it, Um, But the way I think of this external uh, mindfulness is that we see or deduce the experience of others. And we see um, the universality of experience, you could say. We understand that how it is for us is also how it is for others. So with internal mindfulness centered on mindfulness of this body, heart, mind, or the six senses, or the five aggregates. We connect moment to moment with the truth of our experience in order to see deeply into the nature of reality or um, the true fundamental characteristics of life, anicca, dukkha, anatta. 
And so we learn from our own experience how we suffer and how to unbind the heart and mind. And we liberate through this kind of intuitive understanding that develops out of being with our own experience. And the Buddha said that this is clearly important in this fathom-long body, the whole of the Four Noble Truths can be discovered, the truth of suffering and the end of suffering. But sometimes I feel if we um, focus too much or exclusively on internal mindfulness, we can uh, run the meditative risk of self-absorption. We get lost in our own dramas, captivated by our own suffering, and um, even sometimes wind up inadvertently accentuating our own suffering. And we kind of forget that there's a world outside of us, there's a world around us um, that's also living and uh, carrying on. And I think that... um, this, this meditative danger of self-absorption uh, gets accentuated in, in our culture that has such an individualistic bent in the dominant culture. I shouldn't say our culture, in the dominant culture. Um, we're trained in individualism. And so combining... Um, that, with, a, with an emphasis on internal mindfulness, we can uh, run the risk of a disengaged spirituality. So while internal mindfulness is crucial, we also need external mindfulness for balance. In the next few days, we'll be talking about this. Uh, Shelley, last night, uh, got us started off talking about the relational aspect of practice. So external mindfulness, uh, recognizing that our experience is, is the experience of all beings, all sentient beings. Maybe the story's a little different, but the basic, basic experience of how do we find peace living in a world of change, an untamable universe. So we see or infer that this is true for others. As we breathe, so do others. As we struggle in heart and mind, so do others. These experiences are um, the nature of uh, a human life, a sentient life, and not our personal success or failure. So the first thing that this external mindfulness can do is to help lessen our identification or self-absorption in our experience and help us to um, relax into a little bit more spaciousness, seeing kind of the universality. So with external mindfulness, we're drawn out of our um, tendency towards self-absorption, and we um, meet others as a warm-hearted citizen in this world. Because as we contemplate that, as our experience is, so and our others, um, 
This engenders um, compassionate engagement, or it can engender compassionate engagement. We can look out and see that what's true for us is true for other humans and animals and trees, (laughs) all beings. There's a sense of our um, embeddedness in this world. And what I call our deep belonging in this world. So it frees us, right? We're freeing ourselves of, um, of getting caught. You know how easy it is when we're suffering to get caught in um, a narrow uh, world, a small world. And external mindfulness encourages us to live in a wider world. And so I'm going to talk about external mindfulness in the, in the um, parami, the highly valued quality of giving. Or um, I was going to talk about generosity, which is how Don is often translated. But then I thought it's also translated sometimes as giving. And I thought I much prefer the word giving. Generosity sounds like um, a task or, or a thing. But to me, giving um, implies active engagement and it implies connection. When we give, um, somebody receives what we give or some being receives what we give. So there's much more connection for me in that word giving. And I'd like to frame um, Donna in the broader picture as a practice of love. Bell Hooks said, when someone asks me how they can begin the practice of love, I tell them giving is the best place to start. So we're talking about connection, giving, receiving, being um, in community, um, being embedded. uh, And really that's the practice of love. Um, in Buddhist countries, generosity is a foundational practice. It's, um, in many Buddhist countries, it's practiced um, more than meditation. It's considered um, one of the best things you can do with your time and energy is to give. And people traditionally engage in um, a lot of uh, foundational practices, like sila. Sila is another um, important foundational practice. Because um, giving and um, taking care with our actions to not harm ourselves or others, this creates within ourselves a sense of protection, of safety, of abundance, and a belief in our own goodness. And all of that is so helpful for, you've seen it, right? It's so helpful for us um, as far as being able and willing to relax consistently and deeply into our own experience just to relax, to have those, um, that sense of goodness around us, the goodness that we ourselves can create through Donna and Sila.
in addition, giving, and when I talk about giving, um, not just resources, so we may give resources, but we can give love, energy, time, talent, hospitality. I was so touched by that poem last night that uh, Shelley read at the end and how um, the last lines are about we, we will snip uh, mint leaves into your tea. And I was just like, there was something so sweet about that hospitality, that act of generosity. So when we give, um, we're learning um, to let go. So it's a great, very tangible practice that teaches us um, to let go of craving. It's a great antidote for greed, for wanting. So it strengthens non-clinging, non-attachment, letting go. And when we make a habit of, of, of giving, the forces, the mental forces of craving in our mind diminish weaken. There's also a certain feeling, um, perhaps you can remember a time that you gave something to somebody and maybe you were kind of holding on to it, attached to it, but then you gave it anyway. There's a sense of relief when we give, when we, you know, break the, the power of attachment. It's like, ah. That's the freedom of non-attachment that we can learn through giving. There's a couple of pithy statements I love around generosity. Here's one from Ethan Nickturn, a a teacher in um, New York City. He says that offering or giving, offering transforms our inner hungry ghost into a decent, low-maintenance human being. (laughs) So for those who don't know, a hungry ghost is a being that lives in one of the more unpleasant realms, and they have very thin throats and huge bellies, so they, they can never get enough. They're always hungry. But giving transforms our inner hungry ghost into a decent, low-maintenance human being. Another one of my favorite um, pithy quotes with giving is Pema Chodron. She says that giving ventilates the claustrophobia of self-absorption. <laughs> ventilates the claustrophobia of self-absorption. So it helps us open up out of, out of ourselves, right? Join the world. We come out of our cramp, uh, cramp, cramped, self-absorbed cocoons and take our place in the community of living beings, giving, receiving, sharing. Giving is also a great antidote to the individualistic bent of dominant culture, to the, to the culture of individualism, and an antidote to our addiction to consumerism. So, of course, we get the message over and over again that accumulating is the way that we are going to be happy. If we get more things, um, we'll be happier. But 
most studies, and we can see this and learn this for ourselves, find that uh, happiness comes from our connections with others much more than from what we have. Giving strengthens those connections. Ethan Nickturn, again, from uh, his book, One City, A Declaration of Interdependence. The dominant messaging. The profit mentality says, each time the wheel of fortune goes around, let me extract from the collective resources of society slightly more than whatever I put in. Let me always make a little more than I offer, maybe even a lot more. This is, after all, the real way for all of us to be happy. And then he offers what he calls free market generosity. Each time this wheel of fortune goes around, each time I engage in an economic exchange, let me put in slightly more than I take out. Let my actions maximize the welfare of those around me. This is the um, heart of giving. Not that long ago, I heard about a movement called Buy Nothing, Buy Nothing, and um, they have, uh, it's a kind of an organic uh, movement that started that now has 7,000 groups in 44 countries. And the idea is that you create a local group, and um, here's how it's described online. To create a gift economy where people can share resources, build relationships, and reduce consumption. Members are encouraged to give freely and to ask for what they need without any expectation of receiving anything in return. So it's just a community based on asking and receiving and giving and offering. And it's meant to be local, so it's supposed to be people near you. And the stories are actually quite amazing. People have given away cars and houses, (laughs) um, rides to the doctor. The book goes on and on of ways you can share. Like if you make extra food, you can give some to the person down the street who's working really hard to put in their freezer so they don't have to cook dinner some night. And it it really goes on and on. But the main benefit that... um, they talk about is uh, the joy and connection that's created in these communities. People love to give. And they strengthen that sense of embeddedness in place and with others. I joined our local group, except I think you have to go through Facebook, which I try to stay off of. So (laughs) I'm still trying to figure out how I can connect with the group. (laughs) So the Buddha taught that giving brings joy. And it brings joy through, for one reason, through this strengthening of relationship. The commentaries even suggest that if you're having difficulty with a person, give them a gift. I've tried it. It's amazing. It's like as soon as you give something to somebody, you've created some kind of um, 
connection that goes counter to aversion. Here's a story about generosity and connection. So this person was writing a book about generosity. In the final days of creating this book, I was in New York City for a day of meetings. On the subway downtown, a man who was clearly in serious need stepped into the car and asked everyone to listen to him. He told us that he was a military veteran who now lives in the New York City shelters. He has no money and is hungry. He implored my fellow passengers to help, adding poignantly, don't be embarrassed to help me. To my surprise, five or six people immediately reached for their wallets or purses. One woman gave him the full bag of groceries that she had just bought. I, the lessons of writing this book are in my bones now, so I did not hesitate for a moment as I reached in my purse to see what I could offer. It wasn't much. As I placed a modest handful of quarters in his bag, I told him I was sorry I couldn't do more. He looked deep into my eyes with tremendous concentration and sweetness and said, It's not how much you give me. It is that you opened your heart to me. So giving is a way that we open our hearts. In the West, um, sometimes giving is taught as a duty that benefits other people, that we're supposed to give, especially as religious people or spiritual people. In Buddhist teachings, giving is considered primarily beneficial for the giver, not the one receiving. I've learned so much about generosity by spending time in Myanmar where the people um, highly value this quality. I know we do too, you know, here in the United States, but they take it to another level. (laughs) I read um, yesterday when I was working on this talk that, and I don't know what statistics they use, but that Burma comes out number one in terms of giving in the world, of the countries in the world. And um, I would say that's because that Buddhism is so deeply, deeply ingrained in the culture. So in Myanmar, people especially delight in generosity, their own and other people's. So as some of you know, I spent time at this monastery in, um, near Mandalay in the Sagain Hills region of Burma, Chaswa Monastery. Um, I haven't been there since the pandemic. Um, And right now, Burma is a hard place to visit. But I went for a number of years, and every January, and would do a three-week retreat there with a a group of Westerners. It was a retreat specifically for Westerners. And um, some of the nearby villagers would save money all year in order to donate one of our meals. 
And then, while we were eating the meal, they would sit and watch us, (laughs) delighting in their own generosity. Really, that's what they were doing. First of all, they were so thrilled that we were there, that, that they had something to give us, that, that, that they can give us people from an affluent country. They can give us Buddhism. They can give us the Dhamma. They're so happy. They almost can't believe that we would come to their little country and you know, study. So they're so happy. But then when they donate a meal, that's considered a lot of merit. And um, they just sit and watch us, which, of course, is a bit of pressure on your eating meditation. <laughs> you feel like you better kind of, you know, stack up. <laughs> and then when we would go to monasteries and give dana, give donations, the monks always stop everything they're doing and um, chant with you. And the chant is basically about how your donation will be um, a benefit for you and your liberation. So we're the lucky ones when we give because um, giving brings joy to the karmic stream of our hearts. They also um, really would enjoy other people's generosity. So when I would go to Burma, um, I I would always take a trip to buy Buddha statues. I love Buddha statues. And so I was always going um, to the market to get some statues. And one year... I bought a bunch of little um, Buddha figures for the volunteers at, at the meditation center where I was a guiding teacher. And then I got a rather big Buddha to donate to the center for the altar. So I came back right at lunchtime, and I had all my bags, and the servers there were and, um, these lovely women servers who every year after year would come and um, be part of the retreat, Burmese women. So they... Um, they were like, what did you buy? And I was like, Buddha Rupa, Buddha statues. And uh, they were like, oh, I want to see them. You know. So after lunch, I was unwrapping the Buddha statues, and I showed them you know, particularly the bigger one. And uh, I, was, I, I pulled out um, every bit of Pali and Burmese I could to try to communicate. <laughs> I'm like, Buddha, <laughs> Dana. <laughs> Uh, yekta, yekta means meditation center. So Buddha, Dana, Yekta, United States, America. And they're like, oh, sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. That means well done, well done. And they were like so excited that I had bought this statue. They were so happy, happy for me. This um, annual retreat in in northern Burma started from a single act of generosity. So there was a young young woman. Her name um, was Chetsu. She worked as a construction worker. She was 15 years old and uh, worked carrying bricks around this area, this monastery. Um, And her family was very poor. She had had to quit quit school in order to um, to work as a construction worker. And she would go by where the, um, uh, this uh, Western uh, teacher was doing his meditation in the monastery. She had her load of bricks. She walked by, and um, he was the first white person she'd ever seen. 
And she was so happy that he was practicing the Dhamma. Again, they really enjoy that. And so she um, bought him, she, she bought him a Coke, a Coca-Cola to give him his dana, which was about a week's worth of wages. <laughs> Coke is very expensive in, in Burma. And he was so floored by her generosity and her situation that um, he started this whole social service project that goes along with this retreat called the Metadana Project, along with the Sayadaw, Sayadaw Ulakana, the Sayadaw of the, of the monastery, and um, built a new school, uniforms for the school, school tuitions, the hospital, funding free care for monks and nuns, and um, an acupuncture program, and um, supporting nuns in three uh, nunneries, and it all started from that Coca-Cola, <laughs> one can of Coke. You can get the sense of the power of generosity and how it can ripple out, the effects can ripple out, causing all kinds of unforeseen and delightful um, outcomes. So when I was there one time, uh, Sometimes, a couple, once I taught, once or twice I, I actually taught the retreat, but um, I preferred to be the student. Um, but whatever, I, one time I was going around when the, the team was giving out um, dana to, the, um, to the, the three nunneries, so about 100 nuns. And um, the, the nuns don't tend to get as much support as the monks for reasons of sexism. And... Um, so we, we go around and offer the money, you know, hand it to each nun. And so this year, Chetsu bought her daughter. Her daughter, she was older than She had a 10-month-old daughter. And so as we would um, be handing out the dana, she would put the money in her daughter's hand, her 10-month-old daughter's hand, and then help her daughter give it to the nuns. Because she like you could just see at ten months that she she already wanted to teach her daughter about generosity. It was very um, it was so sweet. So as I said, generosity isn't just about uh, monetary dana. It's really about all the ways that we give of ourselves. So we can give our talent, our love, our kindness, hospitality, time, energy, resources. So we might not have a lot of money, but we have love to give. Or we might be short on energy, but we have a talent that we can share. And when we contemplate giving this way, we can know our own abundance. We have such an innate um, wish to give. I feel like it's very natural for us. I've been hearing reports about chocolates in Yogi Land. <laughs> <laughs> Some of us call it the currency of um, retreat life is chocolate. (laughs) But really it's just, it's a manifestation, right, of that innate wish to give, to share, to be connected. 
one time I was teaching and I was walking by the side of this elder housing and there was this older man and he was sitting in a motorized uh, wheelchair. It had a little flag on the back and he had a um, hat. It was marked a George and it had feathers sticking out of it. And he says to me, he says, hello, good afternoon. I'm picking the heads off the dandelions. I said, well, that's really nice service. And he said, well, it gives me something to do and keeps them from blooming and spreading their seeds. That's how he could give, how he wanted to give. And he was clearly enjoying it. It's like life offers us every day so many opportunities to give. Maybe we give a compliment That can be a powerful gift. One day, um, a year or so ago, when I was doing a retreat here, I ran into the head of the kitchen and um, I said to her, wow, I'm just so impressed with what you've done, reopening, getting the kitchen going, the food's really good. Thank you, you're doing such a great job. And I found out the next day that she had gone back and told all the cooks what I had said, and they were all so happy. And then um, when I found out that, I was happy. (laughs) And it was like a compliment just spread so much happiness. It's a way we can give. And yet, and yet, sometimes giving's tricky for us, right? We all have um, conditioning, some of us more uh, stronger than others, around um, self and others, abundance and scarcity. Here's a poem from Mary Oliver called Philip's Birthday. I gave to a friend that I cared deep for deeply something that I loved. It was only a small, extremely shapely bone that came from the ear of a whale. It hurt a little to give it away. The next morning I went out as usual at sunrise, and there in the harbor was a swan. I don't know what he or she was doing there, but the beauty of it was a gift. Do you see what I mean? You give, and you are given. It hurt a little to give it away, right? A little attachment. So giving um, can be a practice, right? Some people it comes very naturally, and for others it might be more of a practice. Um, I didn't come into my adult life as a generous person, definitely not one of my strengths, Resolve was one of my strengths. <laughs> you know, thinking of the paramis. Um, yeah, I, I came into my adult life kind of feeling like it was best to take care of number one, <laughs> take care of myself very strongly, and um, had a lot of conditioning around scarcity. And, um, you know, a lot of us come to meditation for the for the meditation, for the a lot of us come to Buddhism or the path um, for the meditation experience, and then we start to realize at some point, 
oh, maybe sila is kind of important. <laughs> maybe our actions might have, you know, importance. And, and then often later, oh, maybe generosity is kind of important. So at a, at a certain point, I really wanted to um, develop this, this trait. And so I would give very consciously and see what the results were. How did I feel when I gave? What happened when I gave? Um, this is, for some of you, it's a no-brainer, but for me, I had to learn it. I learned that when I gave, I actually, there was enough for me. <laughs> that, was, that was like the deep conditioning was there wasn't going to be enough for me if I gave it away. And um, I learned there was, and, and that actually there was a sense of abundance when I could give. More abundance than when I held back from giving. But I had to learn that. I'm still learning it. It's deep conditioning. So we check out the teachings of generosity for ourselves. Is it true that that generosity brings joy and happiness? We can check it out. Like I said, some of you, that's not um, an issue. (laughs) Others, it's harder. The Buddha recommended consciously cultivating the joy of giving contemplating um, the joy before, during, and after we give. One time at the end of the year, I was doing a year-end retreat, and I decided to make it a Donna retreat. And every night, I would make a donation to a teacher or a, uh, an organization that I valued. And I very consciously, before I made my offering... I would think about who I was giving it to and how they would benefit. As I was making my offering, writing my checks, I would, again, keep contemplating who was getting it, how it felt as I was um, making this offering, really checking out my heart. Like, did my heart want to stretch more? Was it possible for it to stretch more? Was that an, Or was that the right amount of stretch? Just making it an investigation. And then afterwards, I would again um, review what I had done and, and how it felt. The Buddha said, in the ideal gift, the donor before giving is glad, while giving, their mind is inspired, and after giving, gratified. So gladness, inspiration, and gratification. As we practice generosity, we attune to the flavor of our giving, exploring the motivation, the volitional energy behind our action. One time a while ago, a staff member said they were going to um, give blood for a blood drive, and I said, oh, I think I asked why. And the staff member said, because I want to see if I can meet any women in their mid-30s at the blood bank. (laughs) (laughs) And we laughed, just like you did. (laughs) He said, I don't give money easily, but I will give blood. (laughs) Many years ago, I explored, um, there's said to be three levels or kinds of giving. And I explored these around um, 
the bird, the bird food, the sunflower seeds that I gave the birds. So I, I love birds, and um, most mornings I, I like to sit and watch the birds at the bird feeder. So one time I was sitting there, and I found myself thinking while I was watching the birds and having my morning tea, I've spent a lot of money on bird feeders and bird food. Have I got my money's worth? <laughs> Have I gotten enough enjoyment that it's worth all the money I've paid? Um, not only is bird food expensive, but bird feeders are expensive. And uh, I live in an area where you know, part of the price of feeding birds is the bears making off with your feeders. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was funny. One time I saw the bear had the feeder under his arm and was lopping through the, <laughs> the field of the field. And bird feeders are very expensive. So anyway, I had these thoughts. And um, as I contemplated this way, I noticed that it was kind of tight and contracted, that I felt tight and contracted in the heart, in the mind. And I didn't really like that very much, so I decided to, to try different orientation. I thought... This bird food is my gift to the birds so that they may be nourished, healthy, and happy. That felt much better, I noticed, giving with that motivation. And then my heart took one more step unprompted. The birds and I were each fulfilling our role in the universe in a wonderful interconnected dance. There wasn't a giver, there wasn't a receiver, just this dance. And my mind, heart felt free, open, unburdened by self-concern. So these three ways of orienting towards feeding the birds is um, that it lines up with the three kinds of giving in Buddhism, and and it's all about the motivation befi- behind the giving. So the first type. Um, our own self-agenda is very much uh, in the center of things. That was when I was worried about whether I was get my money's worth. So it's, we give, but it's very much about ourselves. Or maybe we're still holding on. Or maybe there's a wanting something in return, a kind of calculation. Or we may give out of guilt or because we want to be liked. And so we see how that feels. You know, how does that feel when we give like that? There's no right answers, only our own experience. As in my um, example, my own experience taught me that that wasn't the kind of giving that my heart really wanted. And it's still considered good to give, even if this is how it's manifesting, because we're starting to learn to let go. And then the second kind of giving called friendly giving is, is, is we'll share more happily. We start to feel the happiness, the metta, the compassion when we give. Less of our own agenda in there. How does this feel? We check it out. What's the karmic impact, you could say, of giving in this way? And then the third kind is when um, there's just not much self there. We graciously give the best that we have, unattached to how it's received and used. 
We think of ourselves as only temporary caregivers of what comes our way. And we allow things to flow where they're most needed. So not a lot of self here, just a freer heart and mind. How does this feel? We let our own experience teach us. And for me, part of the um, practice of generosity is to also explore the times when I didn't give, when I had an opportunity to do so. Some of my greatest regrets arise when I remember when I could have been generous and I wasn't. So I let that regret teach me. What does it feel like to pass up an opportunity to share? So feeling the remorse um, retrains the heart, encourages us to be more giving in the future. Ajahn Chah, in his delightful way, says, Suppose you get some apples and you have the opportunity to share them with a friend. You think it over for a while, and sure, the intention to give is there all right, but you want to give the smaller one. To give the big one would be, well, such a shame. It's hard to think straight. You tell them to go ahead and pick one, but then you say, take this one and give them the smaller apple. (laughs) You really have to go against the grain to give. (laughs) Even though you may really only want to give the smaller apple, you must encourage yourself to give away the bigger one. Once you learn how to give to others, your mind will be joyful. And then, of course, generosity requires um, discernment, so wisdom. We combine the wish to share with discerning wisdom. What does this situation call for? The Buddha was real practical around generosity. He taught that it's important to have enough to take care of your family, your friends, your obligations. So in practicing generosity, we want to know what our unhealthy conditioning is, if there is any, or what, whichever kind there is. What limits our freedom to respond wisely and compassionately? We want to go counter our neuroses. So those of us conditioned to give without a regard, with, while disregarding our own needs might need to develop a more flexible response, asking, in this situation, what do I need? Or emphasizing, what does this situation call for? And we let those questions lead to a healthy giving response for all beings, including ourselves. Maybe some situations call for us to say no and to not give. One other thing I've really enjoyed around um, practicing generosity is that there's a feeling of empowerment that comes when we align with our values 
and we support what we care about. It's like we enjoy our own integrity and our power to respond to the world. There's so much uh, rest and relaxation in giving to what we value. A deep settledness. A deep peace that doesn't um, matter what the results are. A kind of integrity. We like ourselves when we're generous. It supports healthy self-esteem. And healthy self-confidence that we bring to our practice. So I'm going to end with a couple of things. Um, One thing is a quote that I like a whole lot related to generosity. It's a quote from uh, somebody named E.J. Gold. Apparently he leads a lot of um, human potential workshops. And this quote came from the Gnosis magazine. I love this quote a lot. And um, when I read it to yogis, I get the sense that many of them don't like it. So, <laughs> so I'm just uh, giving you a little uh, <laughs> heads up. <laughs> I love it because it really stretches my um, understanding. It stretches my heart. Let's see what you think about it. There's a kind of school where you arrive saying, what can I get, or how is this any good for me? You see, I've had workshops. I figure I must have had 20,000 people go through my workshops in 37 years. Most people asked, what is this going to do for me? My answer is always the same. This is not for you. It's not for your benefit. You're not supposed to get anything out of this at all. All you do is give. That's the whole thing. You just give and give and give. And it costs you to give. And you even have to pay to give. And in the end, you have nothing, just nothing. Now, if you can handle that, you belong here. Pay to give. We should never doubt um, the power of generosity. As I mentioned, that small gesture, well, it was a big gesture for her, for Chetsu, um, led to a whole um, social service project that lasted for years and years. One of my favorite stories is from the autobiography of Pablo Neruda, the Nobel Prize-winning Chilean poet. Uh, who inspired many people with his poetry and his politics. And it describes how a small act of giving had lifelong consequences. 
one time investigating in the backyard of our home in Temuco, the tiny objects and minuscule beings of my world, I came upon a hole in one of the boards of one of the fences. I looked through the hole and saw a landscape behind me like that of our house, uncared for and wild. I moved back a few steps because I sensed that something was about to happen. All of a sudden, a hand appeared, a tiny hand of a boy about my own age. By the time I came close again, the hand was gone, and in its place was a marvelous white sheep. The sheep's wool was faded, its wheels had escaped. All this only made it more authentic. I had never seen such a wonderful sheep. I looked back through the hole, but the boy had disappeared. I went into my house and brought out a treasure of my own, a pine cone, opened, full of odor and resin, which I adored. I set it down in the same spot and went off with the sheep. I never saw either the hand or the boy again, and I have never again seen a sheep like that either. The toy I lost finally in a fire, but even now at almost 50 years old, whenever I pass a toy shop, I look in the window But it's no use. They don't make sheep like that anymore. That exchange brought home for me the precious idea that all of humanity is somehow together. Just as I once left a pine cone by the fence, I have since left my words on the doors of so many people who are unknown to me. People who are in prison or hunted or alone. This is a great lesson I learned in my childhood in the backyard of a lonely house. Maybe it was nothing but a game to play between boys who didn't know each other and wanted to pass to the others some good things in life. Yet maybe this small and mysterious exchange of gifts remains inside of me also, deep and indestructible, giving my poetry light. So I'd like us to end with a contemplation about how our practice is embedded in receiving and giving. So maybe settle into a, if you're not already in a meditative posture. And we can start by contemplating that we are here because of the generosity of people over 2,600 years. People who have given in many, many ways. Resources given through their practice, through teaching, through supporting those who practice passing on the teachings, giving the teachings to the next generation. And finally arriving here almost 50 years ago, 
all the people who have supported this, this center through their practice, their donations, their care, their volunteer work. And those right now who give of themselves so that we can do this practice. We can delight in their goodness, in their dana, in their generosity, their giving. Some for whom it's their job, and yet they also still give of themselves, even if it's a job, through their kindness, their presence, the love they put in the food. There's those who've donated for meals, enjoying their generosity also. All of those at home who supported us to be here, maybe covering for us in different aspects of our life, Maybe just being there as a friend or family member. And I think of all the beings on the land here who share their home with us, a form of generosity from the little chipmunks, the squirrels, the chickadees, fox, moose, bear, deer, little frogs resting in the bottom of the pond waiting for spring, the bugs, the unseen beings, the devas that love to hang out around this hall. the full moon that has shone down on us and the warm sun that has given us tender caresses. The rain, the snow, each other, our community. Does the list ever end? And then our practice, that's us giving it back, giving back to the world through our commitment to understanding deeply this heart, body, mind. Our commitment to peace within and to spreading peace without our metta practice, our compassion practice, our sila practice, considered one of the greatest gifts we can give the world. So we're doing this for everyone, for our friends, our children, our partners, 
our coworkers, the guy who cuts us off in traffic, our communities, our world, for all the people we treat more kindly, the harm we avoid. For this world, and though it may seem intangible at time, just little drops, those drops matter, those drops of mindfulness, wisdom, metta. Our gift to the world. Thank you for the generosity of your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.